0: Track up, please.
1: Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast, where we chat up with personalities who have made more than a mark in their field. Today I have with me a very special person uh, whose job title is rather intriguing, Anne Rove, The Economist's Briefing and Obituaries Editor. Before joining The Economist uh, back in 1976, Anne took a doctorate in Medieval History from Oxford. Today this historian squeezes in time after her day job and has authored four books, the latest one being "Being Shelley, The Poet's Search for Himself, which has just been published and already has uh, raved reviews and it 's more than a pleasure to have you here. Thank
0: you very much, Abhishek. it 's lovely to be with you
1: and I was curious to know what does your business card read and I 'm sure you would have uh, been asked by a few people so So you have the fortune of writing about the dead for a living
0: Yes, I do it 's interesting. You ask what my business card reads. it doesn 't have anything on it at all uh- <laughs> it 's just a blank, and uh, you can leave it open to speculation if you like. But yes, I love writing about the lives of the dead. I mean, to my mind, it's catching the essence or the soul of somebody. And because I don't really believe that we die, I think uh, the soul continues. You're catching something immortal in the people. And that is the most
1: fascinating job to have. Do they teach you the stuff in journalist schools, or is there a course? No,
0: (laughs) certainly not. No, I didn't go to journalist school like most people in Britain. Uh, We we don't tend to do that. I learned my craft, if that's what it is, at the BBC World Service. And then I went to The Economist in various capacities, various jobs, and landed up about three or four years ago with the obituaries. Uh And it's been most delightful. Every week, some new life, some new field that you have to look into. This week, for example, I've got to do uh, Luciano Pavarotti, a very yeah. um, famous opera star, of course. And I've been able to buy quite a lot of his CDs. <laughs> and right. I'm going to go into my writing shed and just uh, shut myself up with Pavarotti for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And uh, yeah, the headline on The Economist says that uh, you guys write about merely famous to the unexpectedly fascinating so how do you pick your people? For instance, how did you choose, uh, say, an Anna Nicole Smith? Oh, yes, that was a
0: famous one and, and rather controversial, as you can imagine. Right. But um, first of all, our obituary subjects don't have to be good or noble or worthy people just people who are rather interesting or for some reason have caught the public imagination or have invented something that turns out to be important. I, I even did an obit once of somebody who'd invented a sort of artificial cream that you put on puddings. Oh. Um, he was so fascinated by the invention of cream that he became an interesting person. You know? <laughs> I became interested myself in the process of it. But Anna Nicole Smith, yes, she had a, a bad life. Maybe we shouldn't have noticed but I felt that her life was very sad. She was just a, a waitress in a chicken fried chicken parlor. She became a huge celebrity just almost randomly. Oh. And then she fell out of stardom and became a rather ordinary struggling woman again. And to my mind, it was an essay about the the fickleness, the transience of celebrity, which so many people love and follow these days. It's nothing. It's a hollow shell. Mm -hmm. And her life so illustrated that, that I thought she was a good one to do. But I got many letters from people who disagreed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I would imagine why, but well, I I loved it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And when somebody as famous as Anna Nicole Smith or, or Saddam Hussein dies, Uh, It means nothing much to me as an Indian. I mean, it doesn't affect my daily life. For example, uh, somebody in Iraq, it was an end of an era when Saddam died. So how do you write to interest an Indian like me, somebody in, say, the Middle East, and someone in the U.S.?
0: Yes, you're right. Well, first of all, I ought to say that I wish we did a good many more Indians than we do. But um, you're right about the different perspectives. What I try and do is, if there's an autobiography, I'll always read that, if they've given interviews, I'll read those, there will be one particular thing, perhaps one subject or one incident that will really have made their lives take the path they did. It will have affected them deeply and that will be what I'll dwell on in the obituary, not the whole chronology of a life. I I think there's an awful lot of your life that is not very important, that is just routine. And so I try and find those and focus on those.
1: And I hope
0: That would be of interest to you in India, to people in China,
1: to people in Europe, I hope. I would like to add something more to that. You wrote about Mohammed Zahir Shah, the last king of Afghanistan. Yes. Uh, I know nothing about him, but I enjoyed reading about him, of how he was in exile for 29 years. There was a poignance in
0: that exile. There was a, a sadness in it. There was a yearning to go back to Afghanistan. And what I loved about it was that he went back to his palace. Yes. And his palace had been shelled, and there was there were nothing left of it. And really, his monarchy was like that. His kingship was an empty shell. But somehow, he had to fill it. And so, even that rather small incident, I thought that was worth reflecting on, musing on. Really, I rather like to muse in my own business. <laughs> Just we call them thumb suckers in England. You know, you're sitting
1: there sucking your thumbs and think. Around the subject, it's, it's rather a nice way to write. <laughs> but then there must be cases when uh, you might be getting too close to your work. Uh, for example, I read about Anna Politkovskaya, the 48-year-old journalist from Russia who was murdered. Yes. She is your yes. contemporary. I mean, in the same profession. So how difficult is it to write about these people? Well, that particular bit was written
0: by a man in our Moscow office who who knew her very well. That was a news story, one we had to do very quickly, it was written very passionately. That particular story made me feel was that I haven't been brave enough in my life. I've just sat in my chair and uh, (laughs) been able to take a rather literary view of Mm -hmm. of events. Um, I haven't had to cover any wars, I haven't tried to uncover any great stories of corruption and mismanagement and evil doing as Anna Polikovskaya had to in Chechnya, she did a wonderful job there. I've done nothing like that.
1: Your work can get consuming at times. How detached are you uh, from your work? How How, How
0: detached am I? Right. Usually I leave a little bit more distance between myself and the subject. Generally, I'm not gloomy about death. I mean, I think of death as an adventure. I'm going to another state. Um, I don't know what happens after death, but I'm very curious about it, and I certainly don't believe it's the end of life. But I do get very involved. It's only two or three days that I have to concentrate on these lives. I get as involved as I can. I try to get as deep into the person as I can, as I say, reading reading their, their autobiographies or and reading what other people have written about them, trying to think about what their lives were like and what was influencing them. So it's quite intense, just for that
1: short time. Right. I, I do try and see the world as they saw it. It's something similar like method acting, like actors like De Niro mm-hmm. and Pacino do. They like it? that.
0: It's very really like that. Yes, thinking yourself into the life of that character. It is absolutely
1: like that. What do you have to say to this uh, comment from a blogger? I don't know whether you've come across this, but one uh, blogger writes about you that, God, Anne Rose writing is so incredibly fascinatingly good. That it makes me want to get famous and then kill myself so that she writes an obadiri about me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I haven't seen that. That's the most
0: wonderful. (laughs) Well, thank you, Abhishek, for for telling me that one. Well, I'll send you a link as well. I'm not kidding. (laughs) In regard to that blogger, I would say I hope that my writing isn't a distraction because I do enjoy writing them, but I don't want to be too self-indulgent. In a way, I'm aware that I change my style a bit for each subject and sometimes I Write in a much more rapid style and sometimes rather more respectful style and sometimes rather jokingly to get a bit of the essence of the
1: character. Talking about characters, uh, what made you choose to write about Pontius Pilate, the man who presided over the trial of Jesus Christ and ordered his crucifixion, or maybe a Perkin Warbeck, supposedly a pretender to the English throne?
0: They are odd topics, aren't they, Havisham? Yes, right. I agree with you. Well, the first one, Pontius Pilate. I, I mean, this came into my head absolutely out of blue. I was actually in church one day and um, there was a sculpture of Pilate and Jesus on the wall and I was dreaming away during the service and looking at this I thought to myself has anything been written about this extraordinary meeting of these two men who represented such different views of the world and that moment when they met was so pivotal to Western history. When I started looking into his life I found that everyone had invented their own views of what his life was Uh because there was very little, almost nothing left of his actual rule in Judea or anything about his childhood, his family. And it was all very interesting. And it formed a rather nice contrast with the actual life of a Roman governor in the provinces, which you can reconstruct from other Roman writers like Pliny and Tacitus and so on. So I could reconstruct his real life. And then I put put in all these invented lives, contrast with it, and it became really a a great deal of fun, that biography. It was um, very
1: enjoyable to do. Uh Then do you start writing about a person or an era or a kingdom by asking yourself, okay, will there be an audience for this? Or it's more like, here's my story, I'll write it because it deserves to be written.
0: It's the second really. It's a feeling of compulsion in the end, you know, you feel... I must do this, no one has done this before. And this is getting so fascinating and of course as you go on, it gets more and more fascinating. And uh, in the end, my books always get rather thick, <laughs> rather too fat, some people say, right. because I, I'm unable to resist putting in every detail I find. I'm, it's like a detective. But, um, <laughs> I'm so interested in what I'm unearthing.
1: When I was oh. writing
0: about Pilot, for example, I looked a great deal at Roman paintings, and I read an enormous amount of Roman literature from that time, from the time he was alive um, in in Latin and with translation, so that I was seeing how Romans saw the world. I mean, I did the same for my medieval, my 15th century biography, I steeped myself in medieval paintings, medieval literature of that particular little span of time. Uh-huh. And and with Shelley, I was, well, that was a, a different project, but I was seeing it all through his own writings.
1: Yeah, can you tell us more about your latest book, Being Shelley?
0: Yes, um, well, this is a book that, again, like Pilate, it sort of hit me like a tornado suddenly. When I was reading Shelley's poetry, one of his most famous poems, The Ode to the West Wind. And I suddenly, it was like being sort of swept up by the West Wind itself. I thought, this is so extraordinary, this poetry. And this hasn't been written about. I mean, we've got lots of biographies of him saying where he was living and who he was marrying and who he was meeting. But his life, to me, his creative life, his spiritual life, was going on inside his poems. It's a sort of life of Shelley's soul, if you like, his creative. I'm very pleased to say the reviewers seem to have understood what I'm trying to do with this. Um, it, it, it was rather a, a risk, I thought, to take because people might have disliked it very much indeed. They uh-huh. said, why haven't you, you know, why haven't you tried to follow his life in the normal fashion? <laughs> but um, it seems to have worked. I think I, can, I, I dare say that now. Oh, congratulations. Well, thank you very much.
1: Do you ever feel the need to write about somebody who is contemporary? I mean, you are a historian, I understand, but do you write obituaries of personalities or historians to fill the need to be part of the present, if I may ask that way?
0: Um, well, I've never wanted to write the life of a contemporary. I think it would be very difficult. I rather like to let the dust settle and let these people retreat in into a little bit of distance. A lot of my friends have written biographies of people who are still alive. It's extremely difficult because you have to talk to them, you have to talk to all the people who know them. You're rather constrained in the end, I think. I'm quite happy not really to be part of the contemporary scene, you know, I feel so much good thinking and writing has gone on in the past that I'm still catching up with, and uh-huh. uh, the values of the contemporary world I sometimes find rather nasty and shallow. It's not always true, of course, but an awful lot of it, especially all this instant media, the blogging, reality TV and that kind of thing, Uh, it's so shallow, it's so vacant, Uh there's nothing in it. And I prefer to be trying to put our existence here, our daily existence in a broader perspective of destiny of man. I, I like writing about higher things, if you like, trying uh-huh. to make a sort of metaphysical structure of working out why men are here, why we are on the earth, what, what our purpose is, and what we may be moving on to, and bringing this into all my all my books. Wow. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> <that's laughs> out high <laughs> <statement>, doesn't it? <laughs> no, really, because
1: uh, trust me, if the world that I live in, uh, the blogging, the podcasting, and all that, it is... It's completely different from the world that you are a part of.
0: I didn't mean to insult your word. No, 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 not at all. (laughs) I could find a lot of good in it, a lot of interest in all these things. And uh, especially (laughs) I I love the way that the Internet and podcasts and that kind of thing bring everyone together in a sort of community of listening and finding out about things. Uh I find that all all very good. But there are other sides of instant reaction, instant writing, um, lack of reflection that I don't like.
1: Uh, Well, another thing that came to my mind is that it is said that historians are capable of uh, manipulating history as well. And you might have come across this question before. Uh, For Mm -hmm. example, the Greek writers estimated the population of the Indian subcontinent at the end of the 4th century BC as around 181 million. And some say it was possible that the writers were exaggerating the figures to demonstrate to their readers the formidable military strength which Alexander would have had to face and he pursued his campaign into the Ganges. So how much of this is real? Well, you've always got to take history with a big
0: pinch of salt, I think. History was a sort of literature and they were writing a good story for everyone to enjoy. And whether it was true or not and whether the facts were exact or not didn't matter at all. Mm. I still think you have to be very careful with modern history because it's always written from a certain point of view. I mean, at the moment, there have been endless books, you must have seen them about the partition of 1947. From every point of view, what is the real assessment of partition, we probably won't know for many years because I find the wounds of it are still so raw in India, certainly. Um, I haven't been to Pakistan, but, you know, we need time before anyone can write that history without a terrific sense of taking one side or or the other side. It's inevitable because humans can't be um, completely fair. I can't be. I'll always bring something of myself to every obituary and every book, and so will everyone else. It's just the nature of being human, but we can try at any rate.
1: Yeah, because, uh, for example, when I'm reading history, uh, for me, I take the writer's word, so for me, a historian can play God if he wants to, so I go by oh, the... very dangerous,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> very dangerous, because I don't think there's any historian I would give that much trust to, not even the most learned. They're, they're bound to bring their own uh, preoccupations, their own obsessions to it. I would always keep just a little
1: bit of skepticism there, you know, as I say, there's that pinch of salt. Uh-huh. So then there is a lot that the historian brings to the table, which is over and above the facts. It's, it's the, a story that he weaves, like fiction, if I may say so. Mm. Yes, it's not always
0: written like fiction. It's sometimes written in the most scholarly ways. Historians can still choose which facts to put in and which to leave out. I mean, I myself, sometimes I've been going through a box of very old documents. Uh-huh. And I'll come across something that doesn't help my argument. Some some bit of terribly, you know, hundreds-year-old paper that rather spoils what I want to write. Right. And there's part of me that says, oh, let's just hide that. <laughs> you know, who else is going to find that here in this book? But, you know, really you've got to be so severe with yourself then and say, somebody is going to find it out one time. And they'll find that you suppressed that fact. And, and that won't make you look good. You have to somehow just, you know, right. try to bring it all out. And even then, you won't you won't be as objective as you want to be. All we can do is try. I think that's the that's the
1: answer. Well, nicely put and That's true.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, this is. Are
1: you have you started working on any other book already?
0: To be honest, because Shelley is only just out. I'm still very much taken up with talking about him, and uh, it's difficult to focus on another book quite yet. I've got a few ideas, but none of them has quite grabbed me as that one did. You know, it's got to make me feel I've got to write this, I've got to do this. And at the moment, nothing quite has.
1: So when do I get my autographed copy of uh, Being Celiane?
0: Oh, well, I'm going to put it in the post right now, Abhishek. If you want one, I'd be delighted to send you one. Ah, you're serious, are you? <laughs> yes, it's always lovely to get my books into other hands. Uh, you know, you only have to ask, and I'll send it right across.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Thanks a lot. I'll make sure I send across the postal address, and as promised, I'll send you the link of the blog right. as well Excellent. thanks a lot and it was great talking to you
0: uh, it's a great pleasure for me Abhishek thank you again for asking me to uh, to talk to you
1: then best of luck with the the obituary thank you see Bye-bye. you bye bye